Should we do a COVID update? Probably. Let's play the music first. Stand by. Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name, ooh, excuse me. <clears throat> my name is Andy Moore. Thank you for joining us and pardon me for my uh, having a, a frog in my throat right away there. Goodness, uh, that's no way to start an episode. Thanks for joining us, listeners. Joining me today, of course, is Dr. Scott Nelson. Hello, sir. What's up, dude? How are you? I'm well. How are you? Um, I'm better than I was this time last week. It's not as hot. Uh, it is. It's like this is a very mild July. Yeah, it's a chill day today, so that's good. Um, I was able to convince someone this morning who was previously not vaccinated for COVID and has had some hesitancy. Uh, was able to convince them to get vaccinated. I was able to get a couple of a uh, couple of parents to get their teenagers vaccinated this week, and a couple other folks who weren't quite sure yet. Um, I was able to help them help them cross the finish line and get to the vaccine. So that's good. So well done. You know, from, from that from that standpoint, I'm I'm okay. Um, you know, the COVID situation remains very tenuous. So from that standpoint. Uh, What's that quote from Mad Men? Uh, it's not great, Bob. It's not great. That's exactly right. I think you and I send that, <laughs> that gift to one another at least twice a week. It's not, not great, yeah. Bob. Yeah, man, uh, what a week. Well, let's uh, yeah, let's talk about COVID for a moment. Congrats on that vaccine conversion. Um, I do a little happy dance uh, outside. You know, when, I, nice. when, I, when I leave the patient's room and close the door, I do a little... Uh, I do a little happy dance. It's like a I football can, touchdown uh, dance, except you don't spike down the syringe into the i guess you're not the one that administers the vaccine yeah and i uh you know some of those guys uh look 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 pretty badass when they do their uh, dances i i i, I don't um, J- just a just a <laughs> kneel and cross your chest kind of yeah, guy it's just more Something of a subtle it's just more of a we got one <laughs> that's right chuck one up for the good guys well uh so things are looking increasingly not great right when it comes to covid yeah so some some data from yesterday from uh from the health department state department of health so um in the last week we've had 2688 new cases i believe there's 750 new cases today um uh, roughly 72 percent of positive COVID uh, samples that have been submitted to the State Department of Health for genomic testing are in fact the Delta variant. So that confirms what you and I have been saying here uh, speculatively for several weeks now, but it does confirm that Delta is the overwhelming uh, number of new infections um, um, in Oklahoma. Uh, only 39.2% of Oklahomans are fully are fully vaccinated. Um, um, we've given 3.3-ish million total doses. Uh, that translates to like 1.5 million people that are fully vaccinated. Um, um, one, one piece of news that is really good. Do you know how many breakthrough cases we've had, Andy? What would you we, – we've, we've had – what would you guess? I would uh, – so since vaccines started in January, I would guess we've had 33 uh, so, so not 33, but, but, but pretty, pretty good. Um, so 1,092 breakthrough <laughs> cases. I was way off. <laughs> I literally just guessed out uh, off the top of my uh, head. 1,092, but that translates to 0.071%. Oh, that's pretty outstanding. 0.071% of, of so, these cases are occurring in fully vaccinated people. So less than 1%. Yes. Well under one percent, less than point one percent. Oh, so less than one tenth of one. Less okay, than so. one tenth of one percent. So that's of. Well, is that number of the total infections since the beginning, or is that just since that's breakthrough infections and fully vaccinated people? Okay, so since vaccines started, yeah. Oh, so, um, that's very few, but that's still a lot of cases, I guess. I, but I guess it's still. I mean, when you're talking day. about like a sample size of a million and a half people, right? Oh, you, is this nationwide then? No, this is Oklahoma. Oh, okay. So you got a million and a half fully vaccinated people. Of those, one thousand and ninety. Uh, okay. One thousand and ninety-two of right. those have gotten COVID since getting the vaccine. I'm glad that I was not paying close enough attention as you describe this for our listeners' benefit, so that we can <laughs> explain exactly what that means. A million people have been vaccinated, and less than one tenth of one percent of those, yeah, have 
had a breakthrough infection. Yeah. I'm going to so text my wife that right now because I think it'll make her feel better, honestly. Well, and the thing is what that tells us, you know, I had this conversation with a patient this morning. So I had a guy this morning who he was like, you know, he's like, I'm just, I haven't done it yet, Dr. Melson. He was like, now, if you or one of my other doctors can convince me that I should, then, you know, I'll do it. But I'm really hesitant. <laughs> and I said, okay, can I try to convince you? And he said, sure. And he said, also, let me tell you, he's like, I'll just put his cards on the table. He was like, I am as conservative as conservative can be when you talk about politics, religion, whatever. And he goes, but I want to be very clear. He's like, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> he's like, I'm not saying I don't want it because I think there's a tracking device or the government's trying to kill me. He's like, I just, his big thing is that this is a guy who he's a little bit older. He's got some health problems, but in recent years has really done an incredible job of kind of taking charge of his health sure. in terms of like has really changed his exercise pattern, his diet pattern. And because of that has made some really, really significant progress in some of his health issues. And he's feeling as good now as he's ever felt in his life. And he said, you know, I've always gotten the flu vaccine and I feel like I get the flu like half the time anyway. And so why take a chance on this COVID vaccine that's maybe going to make me feel terrible and I'm probably going to get the COVID anyway because the other vaccine doesn't seem to work for me. Oh, and by the way, I am healthier now than I have been in a long time. So why shouldn't I just take my chances with COVID? That was essentially the, the crux of his argument. And we had, you know, a great conversation and I said, man... You know, in a good year, the flu vaccine is 70%. In a bad year, it's 30%. 50 to 60% is not uncommon mm-hmm. in terms of effic- efficacy. Sure. And I said, these are 95%. And we walked through like why it's 95% effective. And then I think what really got him is I, I went through this exact data with him. And I said, look, if you don't even, if you're not, if you're not even, if the, if the clinical trial data is not enough for you, look at this. There's a million and a half fully vaccinated people and a thousand infections, 1,100 infections, like, yeah, that's it's pretty good. And like you're telling me you're not a conspiracy theorist. And I believe you. So you should accept that those numbers are real. Right. And he did. And he was like, all right, if you really think I should. And I was like, yeah, bro, I really think you should. It's a, <laughs> it's a tough deal. I mean, like that's a tremendous story. But I was talking to uh, a member of my extended family earlier today about this, that, that I, I think those of us who believe the science, believe the numbers, need to follow it on both sides, right? Like we need, and you have to say, I I acknowledge that people believe math on both sides. Whether or not that math supports your underlying emotional beliefs is a different story, right? So we heard last year, lots of folks say, this is a virus that will infect many people, but only a small percentage of them will get very sick and only a small percentage of them will die, right? As as uh, as it so happens, my mother was one of those, right? She got it. She died. My father also got it, didn't die. My grandmother got it, died a, a little bit later. <laughs> like Not, and, uh, not from complications related to COVID. We don't think. No, I mean, she had congestive heart failure. Right. I'm sure that COVID didn't help, but she was on her way out anyway. Um, so, you know, just as a small case study, and certainly... Hundreds of thousands of people have died from COVID in the United States to say nothing about the rest of the world. But the fact is, yes, it is like a small percentage thing. At the same time, like now that cases are on the rise and we're all very scared, we hear about breakthrough infections and we are terrified. And so, to, but we have to acknowledge that it is a infinitesimally small number of those that have been vaccinated have breakthrough infections. I myself, Scott, am more concerned about our children. Yeah. Somebody think of the children, right? right? Uh, Because they're going to be going back to school. And they, like my kids, are all under the age that's a bit approved. Yeah. Do we know, as the FDA indicated, when we might see approval for that next, like, school age child? So I was reading about this today. So this is why I ask. I had a hunch you might have been reading about this. Yeah. So one, one thing that's a little bit different for kids. So they're asking for six months worth of data from the companies in terms of safety for kids sure. as opposed to three months, which is what they asked for in adults. Right. 
Um, six months of data would also be enough for them to apply for full approval rather than an emergency youth authorization. Right. Um, and which has been, I think, polling shows that a lot of parents, even if the FDA says you can use it, a lot of parents would have hesitancy to give their kids a vaccine that has not been fully FDA approved. Yeah. Um, and so six months would be enough data that they could probably get full approval with that. Yeah. Um, trials are ongoing. I, I believe they said that they should have data, I think, for six to 12-year-olds um, something like September, October. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. And then the FDA will review it. And then data for like two to six will be forthcoming after that. But it is entirely possible that you're looking at like November, December for approval mm-hmm. in like the six to 12. So elementary age. Right. And then like maybe after that, even a couple of months after that for like, like daycare age, right? Right. Like two to six. Yeah. So like it's coming and it's going to happen. But a lot of them could get sick between now and then. Right. And And I think they're also like for the youngest group, right? So the zero to two, I believe they're lumping that in with like basically monitoring pregnant women, right? Because I think that's a lot of overlap there. Yeah. And so, and so like, um, you know, you make, you make a great point, and this is what I tell parents all the time because I've had lots of parents that are very hesitant about trying to even get their teenagers vaccinated. And I've, you know, said what I've said, the same thing I said here on the show, like, the choices now are not get the vaccine or like try to avoid COVID. Mm-hmm. The choices are like get the vaccine or get COVID. Like right. one of those two things is going to happen, especially with kids going back to school with no mask, no distancing, no AB schedules, no virtual. Like kids are going to be back in school this fall and it's, and it's going to be school as usual. And so I'm telling parents, like, if your kid hasn't had COVID or even if they had, they're going to get it this fall. Yeah. You know, There's a really good story the other day. Uh, Newsweek, I think I may have sent it to you um, that talked about this. That was like, you know, the kids are all right and talked about the low rates of infection that we saw in children last year, but also kids weren't going to regular school last year. Right. There was a lot of things in place, masks included and that are preventative. And also we didn't have the Delta variant. We didn't have the Lambda variant. So there are, there are new factors that we don't yet have very enough data about to make a fully informed decision. Particularly because the household transmission rate of data of data of Delta is estimated to be 100%, right? So if one, so person, if gets one it, person gets it in the household, everyone in the household will get it, particularly if everyone in the household is unvaccinated. So this is a situation where if your kid gets it at school and they bring it home to your unvaccinated house, everybody is going to get it. Or if a parent gets it at work and they bring it home, um, even if the parent is vaccinated and they get a breakthrough case, they're at risk of giving it to their unvaccinated teenager or children. And so, um, yeah, it's, you know, the situation, the situation is, it's not great, man. There's hospitals in Springfield, um, Cox, Cox, I don't, the Cox health system in, in Southwestern Missouri, they, uh, put an application in this week to open a field hospital, right? Which is like a, like a hospital in the parking lot. Yeah, right? like yeah. a like a big freaking tent hospital. Yeah, like to take care of COVID patients because they don't physically have room in their hospital and ICU mm, anymore. Yeah, like and that's what we were talking about last year, right? So, At the same time, yeah, right. And so this is what like we're we're we have communities around the country where vaccination rates are very low, that are essentially in the same spot that they were mm-hmm. before. And man, it just it kills me because there's no there's no reason for it. Yeah. There's no reason for it. I mean, on a on the good note, right, is that we a lot more well, we have some adults that have been vaccinated this year, which we didn't have last year. So there may be some fewer vectors. The problem is, you know, like like if every teacher in the state was vaccinated, then I would feel better about kids going to school because there'd be fewer vectors, yeah. fewer doorways into the school, right? And that's right. not the case. So you know, as an aside, and this is, we'll kind of start delving into like other things. We saw uh, today, I think it was, I think it was the first thing I texted you this morning. So uh, for listeners, Andy and I, our daily text string starts sometime between 5.30 and 6 in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Time. Uh, and I think Whoever of, wakes up first. I think one of the first, one of the first things I texted you this morning was that uh, a, a, a couple of state legislators, I, I don't, I didn't see names attached. I have my suspicions who they are. Sean Roberts. Is it Sean Roberts? Mm-hmm. Do you know? Yeah. He was the, the, I think the lead author on that, but yeah, there was like 20 people signed on. Yeah. Are asking. So several, several of our big health systems here in town. So St. Anthony's mercy. OU, all have mandates in place now for employees. So there are uh, employees of one of these, of the big health systems 
um, now have to be vaccinated. There are very, very limited exceptions for religion and medical conditions. But um, um, Sean Roberts and I guess some friends are asking Governor Stitt to issue an executive order that would ban hospitals and health systems from requiring the vaccine um, for their uh, employment. And what, one, just the public health outrage um, like made my blood boil. So I, you know, I didn't check my blood pressure this morning, but I'm sure it, uh, I'm sure, sure, Very it high. sure it wasn't great. Went, went right up. Um, but the other thing that just, that just blows my mind, um, they said, they said, uh, this is a quote. Many Oklahomans are about to have their paychecks used against them to make a medical decision that goes against their beliefs. Healthcare workers are left to choose between taking a vaccine authorized for emergency use or risk losing their job. Comma, this goes against, quote, liberty and justice for all, end quote, period. So first, first of all, first of all, <laughs> liberty and justice for all is in the Declaration of Independence. That's, or excuse me, is in the, is, yes, is in the, uh, is in the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, right? Yes. It's not in the Declaration of Independence. It's not in the Constitution. I don't think. I don't think that exact phrase. If I'm wrong, somebody correct me. Number one. Number two, like, they're, like, there is no constitutionally protected right to have a job working for a hospital, right? The Constitution protects you from overreach and mandates and infringement on your rights by the government, not a private sector employer. If your employer wants to say that you have to get a vaccine or anything else as a condition of employment, they can do that. And the Supreme Court recently upheld that. Right. So this nonsense about like infringement on people's rights. Like, I'm sorry if you don't want to get the vaccine because you just don't want to, if you have a legitimate medical condition that would make it dangerous, fine. Those are very few and far between. If you just don't want the vaccine because you don't, you don't want to get the vaccine. I, I guess don't be a healthcare worker in the middle of a pandemic. Right? Right, right. Like I just, the nonsense that we hear from these people just, <sighs> Yeah. my mind it's it is uh it's exceptional in lots of ways anyway we can all we can stop covid now and get into our outline. i was like none of that stuff was even on our outline for today <laughs> you guys we're just look at this getting, great content we're just getting into it all right well we did want to, to go back to education we really did want to talk about the state board of education who i think was it earlier this week that they adopted was, the rules yeah. for passage of so it was i think this is a little nuanced House Bill 1775, which was, we'll just say it was the critical race theory law, right, that passed the state legislature, even though it's not really about that, but it, well, they don't use those words, but it is about that, and also it's not a thing that's being taught. Regardless, um, the law passed, and related to that, they passed some administrative rules that govern the Department of Education, right? So I think listeners, most of you probably know this, but in Oklahoma, every year the legislature has to approve administrative rules that like apply and govern to all these state agencies. And often these are rules that the agencies request. They're like, hey, we want to change this rule so that we can follow it. And they just say yes. Sometimes they also like inflict rules upon agencies. So this was um, the State Board of Education adopting the rules that they had proposed that were under this, but it has to go back, I think, for final approval at some point. So that happened this week, and of course, folks were rightly outraged. Yeah, and and I think that this is, and you touched on this, but I think it is important that we say this like explicitly. And we talked, we had a whole episode where we talked about House Bill Bill 1775, and I don't, I think we kind of said this, but I don't think we ever explicitly said this. So HB 1775, like you said, is billed as the like banning critical race theory bill, first of all. And critical race theory is not being like like the those words are never used in the text of the bill, number one. Number two, the bill doesn't address critical race theory. Number three, as hopefully as I would guess listeners of the pod probably know, but but maybe don't <laughs> as you may have seen as you may have seen on social media um, or, or you know, other other podcasts, or or the news, or the interwebs, what have you. Unless you are in graduate school of some kind, right? And, unless and you're studying, yeah, race theory, of yeah. Some un- kind. Unless you, unless you are in grad school in sociology, or you know, um, 
sociology or unless you're in law school, no one is teaching you or your children about critical race theory. Like this it's, is it's like saying that our eighth grade teachers are teaching them quantum physics, which is not the case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like this is this is. And like this is a whole like subset of like academic research and academic inquiry, and like there are journals dedicated to critical race theory. You know, people are talking about it like Mark, like they're saying it's they're teaching Marxism because critical like critical theory is like an, like part of continental European philosophy that started with I think the I'm not a philosophy person I think it was the Berlin School maybe, um, but like it, this is this is really like esoteric stuff that has nothing to do with Karl Marx or Friedrich Engels. It has nothing to do with communism and it has nothing to do with K through 12 education. <laughs> right. um, but it is being, it is being used like that, 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 that uh, phrase critical race theory is being used to try and like gin up outrage about teaching equity, like about equitable education right. and like teaching an accurate history of race and race relations in the United States. And what House Bill 1775 does, in my opinion, is essentially bars that. Yeah, and the, it's this the, really subjective set of criteria of things that you can't teach. Yeah, and the the rules that the State Board of Education passed this week that were so bad is because it was more than just the bill. Well, was different than the bill. the The rules has all have all these provisions, right? That are like, oh, uh, I, I I won't say they are incentivizing parents and teachers to turn in other teachers who they think are teaching critical race theory or anything else to do with like race that they don't like, right? And so this, Scott, I'll be honest, um, this reminds me of the red scare back in the sixties. Right. Yeah. right. Like it's like, you know, McCarthy would be like, please report anyone you believe to be a communist. Yeah. And then they would arrest them or put them in jail without due process. And it was a witch hunt. And that's yeah. what this is, is like trying to pit teachers against other teachers. Right. Trying to pit parents against teachers. These teachers, God bless them, are trying to teach fucking arithmetic. Right. Right. And like times tables and spelling Okay, well now just pause. On our show, Andy, we say multiplication tables. Okay, but I'm not. No, we don't say we don't say times tables. Scott, I'm show. of the people. <laughs> you call what you want. It's <laughs> that new math. But they, honestly, like if you ask my son, who's you know going into fourth grade, like what do you learn about critical race theory? Is not remotely on. He's like, he might learn about. He loves Greek mythology, right? Which Greek I mean, mythology is awesome. It's very interesting. He's you know big into Percy Jackson and all of that stuff now. Uh, they don't teach Percy Jackson. He found it on his own. But uh, yeah, the idea that somebody, uh, I think Haley Charlton was the one that posted like these guys that think that teachers have the time to actually teach critical race theory have no awareness of what's happening in the classroom. And also, I will just say, no awareness of what, and I mean, and like you and I are, neither of us, we're not philosophy majors, we're not lawyers, we're not sociologists, but like, also no awareness of what critical race theory like right. is. Right, <laughs> right. Like, I would wager that no one bitching about critical race theory can actually explain critical race theory. No, because it's, uh, <laughs> it's difficult to explain. It's a whole different, yeah, it's like a subset of thought. Anyway. Uh, so that happened this week. Also, I will add, this is a, this is not a personal complaint, but the process by which the State Board of Education released this information, I think, should change. So they technically followed the the letter of the law, and I believe they did not uphold the uh, spirit. spirit of the law, right? So they um, the Open Meeting Act requires that they post the agenda to the meeting 24 hours in advance. They don't, they're not, they're not technically required to also post all of the supporting documents, handouts or whatever that they would have. Now, often public entities do, right? Cause it's just a packet that all the board members get. So like, here's the agenda and here's all the stuff we're going to talk about, including like proposed administrative rules. Well, they did not, 
post the administrative rules until about 30 minutes prior to the meeting, um, which I am almost certain was like a way to like keep it back from the public and you know members of the media until the last minute so they didn't have a lot of time to to talk about it. But you know what it sounds like? It sounds like the way that the legislature handles the budget where no right. one knows what it says till they get right. there to vote on it and they're like, right. let's pass it out real quick. All right, y'all, let's vote. And it's like, well, hang on. Yeah, this is eight billion dollars. Let me look at this for a minute before we, yeah, before we look. No, it's, we some, vote. it's some bullshit. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's some, that's it's some bullshit. Some, it's some shenanigans. Yeah. All right. Well, um, let's move on. I'm getting all tense about this, um, dude. What is happening in Western Heights? Well, yeah. So Western Heights, which everyone always asks, where is Western Heights? It's, it's that way. Yeah, it's uh, southwest of Oklahoma City. I think it's south of Mustang or out that way. Yes. Um, so they were also a subject of conversation in the last several state board of education meetings, um, because there's been some mismanagement of their school district. And I don't offhand have all the details on that, but Scott, you're clicking your mouse quite a bit over there. So maybe you've got it pulled up. I was looking up to see where Western Heights is exactly on the map. Okay, great. Give people a, uh, an exact, an exact location. So Western Heights high school is uh, is on Southwest Forty Fourth, uh, and it's gonna be uh, like Southwest Forty Fourth in Council. So yeah, okay, like, yeah. Like, so, so kind of east of Mustang, but yeah, south of I Forty. Yeah, that's actually where I thought it was, and someone else told me south of Mustang. They were All right, wrong. So you know where uh, Hobby the Hobby Lobby corporate office is? It's down, honestly, it's down by the landfill. Yeah, landfill so it's, it's well, so it's near. This is near the airport. Actually. West of the airport, about three miles. Yeah, yeah. There's a landfill at uh, Rockwell and Southwest Fifteenth. Yep, one of the major landfills for I Oklahoma City. I have taken stuff there. Yeah, same. Um, anyway, so the the gist of this is that the decision several meetings ago from the State Board of Education was that the superintendent um, was fired, was terminated uh, due to their mismanagement. Then Western Heights appointed a new superintendent, and the State Board of Education said, hold on there. Whoops. You guys have messed up. We are going to give you a superintendent um, to kind of get a handle on things, and we're going to give you um, one of our folks who has been uh, Monty Guthrie. He's um, the Deputy Superintendent of Finance and Federal Programs for the State Department of Education. Uh, and so they like installed him as an interim superintendent for Western Heights. Um, and this week, Western Heights said, uh, thank you, but no, you can keep your guy and we're going to put in our person instead. And what did the, they have the legal authority to do that? Well, Andy? we'll find out. Um, so the, you know, the board president, um, nominated assistant superintendent Kim Race to the interim role. The board approved it three to one. I guess they have an even number of folks on the board, which is odd. And uh, well, I think they're, I don't think they have a full board right now. Are they I short think of somebody? Yeah. yeah. Because they, they had quorum. So they had a meeting last night when this right. all happened. And they had, they weren't sure if they were going to have quorum because they initially only had two. Then a third one showed up. And so I guess they had four show up total. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if you got a quorum with three, I mean, five. I, I would say you get probably five. So I think they're, I think they're so down the short a board one. Number. Yeah. Well, so then the one dissenting vote said, uh, Brianna Flatley is her name. And she said, quote, this is in the Oklahoman. I'm definitely worried that what just happened is illegal. We're going to see what happens next. Well, they also, they also apparently found like a bunch of bags of shredded documents in a dumpster <laughs> outside the administrative building. And like they, the, the state department of education had to warn the district and say, um, just so we're clear, the shredding of documents is not legal. And these threaded documents appear to include like checks and like pay stubs and financial statements. <laughs> like, yikes! This is like, this is uh, you know, is this uh, is this the Trump organization over here? What's ha- what's happening? Oh, right, it's, <laughs> um, and it's been bad news bears, honestly, for Western Heights. They have lost like forty percent of their employees since the the previous superintendent, um, uh, uh, Mannix Barnes, uh, from when they took office in 2019 the district has lost almost half of their employees which tells you something's going on really terrible academic results absenteeism Um, their enrollment fell by about a third 
over the past year. Um, there was just stuff going on. And uh, so the fact that the state had to step in and appoint somebody who they've you know now declined um, is is a big deal. This doesn't happen all the time. And it's I you know my as a as a public school parent, like my heart goes out. Imagine those. I mean, there's like three thousand students that are in schools out there. Yeah. Um, all of those families who are just like, what is happening? Like yeah. we're losing our teachers. The superintendent's corrupt. The state's trying to help. Our state board doesn't, or our local board doesn't want it, even though clearly we need it. Uh, and so here we are. So we'll be. I don't know. I don't have uh, any big advice, but if you live in Western Heights, we'd love to hear from you if you're a parent. And also, our hearts go out to you. Let us know if we can help. So, kind of moving on. Was was there any uh, was there any McGirt drama this week? Well, was there, Scott? <laughs> Listeners, you may mention. Uh, you may mention. You may remember that <laughs> last week we discussed the community impact panel that the governor had convened this past week in Tulsa. And we told you last week, we'll see how it goes. And well, it, it went, it went, it did not go well for governor Stitt. Uh, the event was scheduled for two hours and he ended it after an hour. So only halfway through, um, a lot of folks turned out as it is. So as a recap, maybe we'll start here. It was the governor and a bunch of DAs, district attorneys, yeah. on stage. Um, the <laughs> Attorney, tribes, attorneys district. That's right, attorneys. Yes, <laughs> districts, districts attorney. Um, the uh, the tribes, and this was dealing with the McGirt ruling. So the yeah. the tribes were not tribal leaders were not present. They weren't even formally invited. They like the tribes attorneys general or whatever their their chief. I think it's attor- I think it's attorney generals. I no, no, it's attorneys general. That's you plural. Sure? I don't think it's different if it's tribal. It's still attorneys general. You're right. General. It is attorneys general. You're right. Grammar knows no nation, Scott. But they, um, <laughs> Scott's wife gestures at Andy, just for the record. <laughs> Point. I'm going to have to do some kind of sound here. Yeah. So uh, we are rim shot. That's what I needed. There we go. Yeah, anyway. Uh, so attorneys general from the tribal nations. Like received an email that was basically an FYI, save the date. Hey, please come to our community impact forum where we're going to talk about how terrible you are. And uh, and so that event came. A lot of folks turned out. A lot of um, tribal members attended. And the governor, this part cracks me up. This is honestly like so bad that it's funny. The governor said in the meeting, well, I think there's a lot of people here that aren't from Oklahoma. Like, listen, man, I guarantee <laughs> every single person in that meeting and was from Oklahoma. The McGirt ruling only affects Oklahoma. Yeah. And the tribes are don't have the time or the money or the effort to, like, go find foreign actors to come in here, right? Like, right. this isn't – whenever someone says, I think this is a lot of folks that aren't from here, they're generally wrong, right? Like, it's – Yes. And, you know, so, you know, we, we start off by saying that this – that this forum, well, and so the the forum kind of devolved into, you know, a lot of a lot of shouting, a lot of kind of protesting. Like it, I would say, I mean, do you do you think that there's any level at which this was constructive? Um, well, yes and no. So one of the news stations carried a story that. I, the, the headline and the way it was written sounded to me, my perception was that it was exactly the news story that the governor wanted. So to answer your question, I think it was there on some level, it fulfilled the governor's goals for the event. Right. And so this was the point that I was going to make because, you know, there was a lot of social media chatter about like, there were some tweets about like, man, whoever plans these events for the governor is really bad at their job or like the governor is really bad. And, and then there was some pushback saying, are you kidding? This is exactly what he wanted. Right. What he wanted was video of a rowdy crowd shouting him down that he can say are protesters and radical leftists and Antifa right. and people not from Oklahoma. Right. And then it's pitting like this us against them. Like it feeds in to this us against them yeah. narrative. And it feeds into this law and order narrative. Like I I think 
I mean, I don't know. I'm not in the governor. You know, the governor doesn't talk to me before he plans to do shit. Um, I wish he did, but he doesn't. Um, I think this might have gone exactly the way they expected, and it might have gone even exactly the way they wanted it to. Right. Right. Like, they weren't wanting a constructive conversation about the impact of McGirt. They were wanting video of people yelling and screaming and protesting that they can use that they can use in a campaign ad. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, to some extent they probably wanted to hear from victims like their horror stories. About but are, but I mean, my question and I, and I and answer I I, don't, I this is this is not rhetorical. Are there any? I don't know. like. Has any? I mean, are there? Are has anybody been let out of prison from McGirt? Well, yes, I think a couple of people have, but. I don't think it's very long. I, I don't quote me on this. Like I honestly don't know, but like my understanding was that yeah, there's a bunch of convictions that have been overturned. But they've but almost like, always almost always the person that is then charged with the same or similar crime in federal court, and they'll have to be tried again. Right, and and in many cases, are that process is started proactively, as we discussed right. last week, like, week to, before. To the extent so far that there are victims of the McGirt decision, it's the FBI and U.S. attorneys that operate in eastern Oklahoma because their offices are overwhelmed with these cases. Right. right? In fact, like, the, yeah. So the other thing I was going to say, and and listeners, you know, all the links to these stories will be in the show notes. But the, uh, this week, the FBI said they anticipate that there will be. 7,500 new cases in federal court next year as a result. So these are roughly 7,500 people that were convicted in state courts in Oklahoma that will have to be retried in federal court. However, it is unlikely they would be released. I think, though, I, I think, if I'm being honest, if Scott, if you're the victim of a crime, right? Like, let's yeah. say your your family member was murdered, you, sure. you were raped, some, your wife was raped, you know, like these things yeah. and that person, something terrible happened. Yes. And that, that person who has been convicted on it gets, um, re- that released from, we'll say state, uh, they're there. It's overturned from the state courts. Sure. They are, Does they that are, take away your closure. Well, like, yeah, you that, know. that's exactly right. So even if they're rearrested, there's, they are not yet convicted in federal court. And if there's a delay in between these things, there's a chance that they could be released. And that could be an understandably very scary thing. 100%. And if that starts happening, <laughs> then we should, then we should figure out what, what, what needs to be done. Is that a, is that a resource problem? Is that a process problem? Is it both? Right. But like, unless I'm missing something that hasn't actually happened yet. Right, right. No, like it's my understanding is, that it hasn't. Know, and, I, and I understand that, like the anxiety. I understand the anxiety of the families who are put through the idea of that these people are going to have to undergo another trial, like one hundred percent, and like nothing. There, there's, you know, um, I don't have any idea how I would feel if I was one of those people. Right. Yeah. Um, the facts are that according to the Supreme Court, all of this was done improperly. And in our system, in, in, in our system of government that operates with laws and that operates with rules, you don't get to just say, we're going to do it this way because it's easier and more convenient. You do you do it the way the law says. Right. And the Supreme Court said that the law wasn't followed, like that this was done improperly. And so you have to go back and do it over again. Right. Right. And the answer to that is not, in my opinion, what the governor says, which is to like, well, you just need to get the Supreme Court to overturn McGirt. Like, right. So which, that's which, which one I think, I mean, I'm not a Supreme Court expert, but like, and I also want to say too, I'm not like, I'm not saying like one way or the other. You know, I McGirt was decided five to four. I think I think had it been argued in front of a different panel of justices other than the nine that it happens to be argued in front of, it could it could just as easily have been argued like it could have gone the other way. Well, that's what he's hoping, right? Right. Yeah, but I don't think that. But, but my point is, I'm saying it was. I'm saying this was a very like closely decided sure. case. Like it, the McGirt decision could have gone the other way. Very but easily. also it has gone through several levels to get to the Supreme right. Court. This is not a new case. But but the point that, that I'm trying to make is that generally speaking, 
even in issues that are very contentious, the Supreme Court doesn't go back and overturn a decision uh, right. that it has just recently made, even if that decision was close. Right. 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 There was a recent case in, uh, I'm going to get it mixed up with the states. One case was in Louisiana. One case was in Texas. Both of these cases had to do with abortion. And there was a challenge to an abortion law. And this year, like the last term, the uh, there was a challenge to an abortion law that I think was in Louisiana. And the court didn't even, uh, like, they I, I forget if they didn't take it up or if they ruled in favor of the abortion clinic. And John Roberts, I think, wrote the majority opinion and was like, look, I'm not in favor of this. But we decided this exact issue two years ago, and we're not like I thought that. And John Roberts wrote the opinion. I thought that decision was wrong, but that was the decision, right? And and we don't go back and undo shit that we did two years ago. No, because we need some stability, predictability. Stability, yes. And so I think if the governor, you know, McGirt is the decision, good, bad, or not. Mm-hmm. And I think the governor is mistaken if he thinks that even the present court is going to undo that. Right. No, that's exactly right. And and I think I'll be thoughtful in how I phrase this. The I agree with you that we have to respect the rule of law. Um, I agree that the Supreme Court does not usually and arguably should not waffle on their decisions shortly after they've decided them, right? Because then people will keep challenging it. This is like, as a parent, you know, you've got to like let your yes be yes and your no be no and stick with it so that your kids aren't just still standing there like trying to argue their point. Um, thirdly, I I agree or I, I will admit as we just discussed that I think for a lot of um, crime victims, as as we just said, it is certainly a this time of uncertainty is can be scary and rightly so, right? Um, I will add to that that I think the approach to this is entirely wrong, right? Like this is I think the governor's approach to this is way wrong. To the the way that you said, like his goal to get it overturned, I think is misguided. There are, and I will say I believe there to be more productive paths to a remedy here than to just digging your heels in and trying to say, nope, I want it overturned, right? Like there, there is a path to facilitating a transition from people who have been convicted in state court to having them be retried and reconvicted in federal court. There's a way to do that to make it uh, easier, to make it faster, to make it, you know, like, to grease the wheels of bureaucracy to, to do it in a way that doesn't re traumatize the victims and their families and to alienate tens of th- hundreds of thousands of native Americans. Right. Especially for a guy who is going to be running for reelection, potentially the presidency someday. Right. Like the fact that he is willing to burn these bridges for what end, right? Like there's, there's a mutually agreeable goal here that, that I think he and I and you and a bunch of folks agree on, but his approach to it is to go it alone, and that's not the way to do it. Yeah. Okay. Well, we agree. Great. Uh, listeners, let us know how you feel. We'd love to know if you agree or disagree. I'm sure some of you will, and that's always exciting. You can send an email to podcast at letsfixthis.org or hit us up on Twitter. All right, Scott, let's uh, pivot back to education. I feel like we've been a, we've both a little – we're a little uh, – Scatterbrained. Salt. Well, no, I was going to well, say salty. A little oh, salty yes. this week. Yes. Salty well, I, Salty is my new permanent state, I think. It is. I saw a... Uh, do you follow poorly drawn lines on Instagram? Uh, yes. Birds and bears and all that. It's a yes. great comic. It's yes. at poorly drawn lines. There was the one the other day of the bird, I think, and he was saying, I, everyone thinks I'm angry. I'm just concerned. And I was <laughs> like, yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I'm going to put that on my wall. Um, so, so news this week about Epic Charter Schools. There'd been a, a brief lull in news about them, but they're back. Um, it was actually a story in the frontier that was very well reported and pretty interesting, I think. Um, and honestly, not 
this this isn't a story that like got my uh you know fires burning which was nice it was a just a interesting read because as as you all know like epic charter schools ballooned in the pandemic with huge enrollment and at the same time there's a bunch of uh um investigations state auditor looking into it because the way that they had it structured was basically millions of dollars of state money was going to epic charter schools with no accountability right and then being funneled into this company called epic youth services for quote management expenses like 45 million dollars right like a lot of public money what do you think they built by the hour i don't know but it it all went (laughs) to a black box one yacht per hour right and so they um uh, over the last several months the frontier has interviewed I, like 12 or 13 former staff members and, and maybe board members, I forget at all. Um, but they put together a bunch of interviews to including like their superintendent uh, and that kind of stuff and really wanted to dig in and find out like what happened and what led to Epic Charter Schools separating from these two guys that founded the whole deal. Like what, like where did this line come that you wanted to move away. Uh, those two founders, of course, um, decided not. To, they declined to, uh, didn't respond to what? the interview. Right, yeah. Um, they didn't want to go on the record? Right, yeah. But it was really interesting. Uh, it's a really good read, if you haven't read it already, um, to look into it. I'm, there's kind of too much to go point by point, person by person. Um, but it was a really interesting description from the inside of how this all went down and I honestly, my takeaway, Scott, and I, I'll, you know, I'd love to hear yours, but my takeaway was like, once everything was brought into the light, the board did the right thing. They were yeah. like, oh man, okay. You know what? Like we didn't pay close enough attention. W- w- the auditor brought it out and we only had one decision, like one option available. And that was to part ways. And so we did. Yeah. I would agree with that. I think that there, uh, you know, I don't know that Epic is like, where it needs to be yet, but I think that they are on the road. Mm-hmm. And I was even happy, I guess happy is the right adjective. I was relieved, I don't know, something, um, to hear some of the staff, they were like, were you guys prepared for this dramatic increase in in students? And some of the former staff were like, no, not remotely. Which, of course not. Why would they be? It's not like they can, any school district, real or virtual could immediately absorb a 50% or hundred percent increase in enrollment, right? Like that's just not how that works. So um, I think it was a, it's a good article. We'll leave it at that. Scott and I agree. Good. We're in agreement. Uh, and then before our very last story. Yeah. Can I sh- share one thing that has just, this just came across the, came across the news desk now. I've got a news thing here. Yeah. Uh, there has been a case in Dallas of a rare disease called monkeypox that has been reported. This is what we need. So this is like a uh, that's it's like it's kind of in the same family I think as like the chicken paw, the other pox viruses, um, but it's primarily in monkeys. But it can be transmitted to humans. Um, this Isn't was chicken pox the same as shingles. No, not exactly. Really? No. I, mean, I thought it was the same virus. It's zoster. But, like, the disease process isn't the isn't same. Isn't Zoster a brand of hair clippers? No. That's Oster. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, there's so so uh, this person uh, has monkeypox. They are in the hospital. They're stable. They flew from, uh, from Nigeria. Wait, flying monkeypox? They flew from Nigeria to Dallas via Atlanta. Um, this is a very rare disease. It spreads mostly via respiratory uh, respiratory transmission is the primary mode of transmission. Um, however, apparently, experts in such things are saying that the risk of spread is pretty low. Do you know why? I, I'm reading it's a double-strained DNA. I mean, all that, that's not the reason why. I don't know the real reason, no. Because masks are required on flights. Oh. So, so because we still have masking on flights, it is possible that we will not see an outbreak of monkeypox in Dallas um, because assuming that this person was complying with the mask mandate right. and uh, that flight attendants were uh, enforcing that as they tend to do. Um, so we could have just been spared an outbreak of monkeypox 
here in uh, in in the good old U.S. of A. Uh, because of mask wearing. Well, you heard it here for first, folks. Masks prevent monkeypox. They do. I honestly, I mean, the the folks from East Asia have had this figured out for literally decades, right? Yeah. Um, generally, if you're in the airport and you see someone wearing a mask pre-COVID, it was likely they were of Asian descent. Is yes. that a fair statement? And uh, I, I, I honestly wish that masks were less politicized for lots of reasons, not the least of which is that I think it's a, a smart thing when you're traveling. Everyone who travels gets sick. Man, every time I fly somewhere, I get sick, and I'm just going to start wearing a mask from here on out. I've got a couple of flights coming up, I think, and I'm just going to wear a mask because and wash my hands more than I normally do. I, it's just good hygiene. Yep. yep no yep, one, yep, yep, yep. no one likes to go on vacation and be sick when you get there, right? But um, interestingly, I mean, maybe interestingly, uh, my lovely wife Ashley mm-hmm. uh, spent a big chunk of her childhood overseas in a place uh, with lots and lots of monkeys. She grew up in uh, Indonesia, and uh, they think that she had monkeypox as a child. Really? Yeah. I. Had, we should get Ashley on the show. Ashley's in the other room listening to us talk about herself with <laughs> monkeypox right now. So, listeners, you heard this. Ashley had monkeypox. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, let's pivot very quickly and end on a positive note. Uh, and, Scott, that note is that the U.S. Mint, a, a federal agency, which I don't believe we've ever discussed on the podcast before, um, they have announced new designs, three new designs for new quarters that will be released next year. And these quarters feature Oklahoman and former uh, chief of the Cherokee Nation, Wilma Mankiller. Very exciting. That is great news. There haven't been that many women on quarters or any coin for there that matter. There haven't been any native women. Uh, there's a, on quarters, there's the Sacagawea dollar. Dollar, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, to my knowledge, that's the only two, I think. So this is pretty exciting. And Very cool. It's, I think it's exciting for the Cherokee Nation. It's exciting for women. It's exciting for Oklahoma. And for America. And for America. That's right. Because, I mean, all the reasons. I guess, you know, listeners, you get it. You get it. Okay. On that note, we'll wrap up. Uh, thank you for being here again uh, this week. We've got some really great guests lined up this summer. Uh, Sarah Jane Rose from Sally's List, uh, Amanda Ewing from OEA, uh, a bunch of others that I'm looking at my list. Julia Kurt, former, or not former, but current state senator, will give us a bit of a recap on how this session went and what to look forward to next year, uh, as well as others. If you are interested in joining us, please let us know. I'd love to have some guests. Um, I've had a, a couple of members of my family asked to be guests. Scott, maybe we should have a, an all in the family episode and get your parents and, and my parents and. <laughs> That could, that could evolve quickly. It's just a barbecue yeah. and podcast, sure. like just like God. I have to decide if that would necessitate more or less booze. That's fair. That's fair. All right, listeners, um, have a good weekend. Stay warm or cool or whatever the weather is where you're at. Get uh, vaccinated and wear your masks. That's exactly right. And don't forget that decisions are made by those who show up. Have a good week. Um,